Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, today, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your uh, Bibles, you can open up. I would encourage you to open up to one of the Pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. It's also printed in your order of worship. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, our prayer this morning is, is simple, but we know that you can only do it, that you would cause your spirit uh, to come down on us and be present with us in a way that we can see uh, the word who became flesh, the one who loved us to the end, the one who says these really, really hard truths, but he says it for our good and our flourishing and for the flourishing of the whole world. Father, I pray um, no matter what kind of weeks we've had, um, good weeks or really hard weeks or indifferent weeks, Father, we pray that you would lift up our face and remind us where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We give you thanks now. We pray that you be with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, last week, uh, we added a little puppy to our family, which is pretty exciting for our kids. Uh, this was something that we spent a, lo a lot of time preparing for. We did a ton of research on breeds uh, to be able to get a good fit. Uh, we were recommended to read a book called The Art of Raising Puppies, or a puppy, written by a bunch of monks. Monks know a lot about uh, puppies. These particular monks do, at least. We uh, typed up some training rules for everyone to follow so we would all be consistent. And of course, we had a ton of conversations with our kids about expectations. But before we picked her up, we stopped at a gas station to grab uh, some snacks for the kids on the way home. And the owner of the gas station, who happened to be there at the register, who was super nice, asked what our family's plans were for the day and... My wife, Rachel, said, well, actually, we're picking up our new puppy. And he laughed a really big, kind laugh and said, 
oh, that will be great for the kids. You Americans spend so much time on that stuff. And we looked at him, we're like, "Mm mm-hmm. This actually turned out to be pretty prophetic. Um, Those of you who have adopted a puppy already know where I'm going. The set of rules that you're given by the breeder and the books that we read were absolutely right on. The problem is, is when you add a unique life and a will and an intelligence and its own personality, that's where the rules, while absolutely good guideposts, are not sufficient ends unto themselves. Because we adopted, we did not adopt a robot, we adopted a little puppy. And the goal is to have a trusting, harmonious relationship with our dog that is good for her flourishing and good for our family's flourishing as well. Like, for example, uh, we had a protocol that we felt uh, pretty confident about uh, in terms of training her to go to the bathroom in one particular spot in our yard. The problem is that it's on wood chips, and she's not familiar with wood chips and isn't comfortable on wood chips, so I spent close to an hour yesterday in a stare-down contest with her about whether she would go potty or not. Now, I can assure you that surely that was not in the book that we read. But I knew, I knew that I had to do it because Caesar Milan says that we must be the pack leader. So the rules are really good. But there is a spirit behind them that has to inform how we apply those rules. And it takes wisdom to know how to do this. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is telling the crowd something similar, but of course far more profound. Because the law that he is talking about is meant to undergird all human joy and shalom and flourishing. God's law is good. But the problem is, is our human heart. And how the human heart would like to twist the law to make it a checklist rather than searching out and embracing the spirit or the intent of the law. So in this part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at, Jesus begins to dig into the spirit of the law that God gave to his people through Moses 1,500 years earlier. And the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments and many other many of the other instructions that God gave his people so that they would inherit the land, they would know how to live as they inherited that land, and be able to set them apart from their neighbors. Now last week's passage was the setup for everything that we're going to talk about today. Jesus told the crowd in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now Jesus is essentially saying to God's people, you do not have a full picture. You have a really good set of guideposts, but they are are the tip of the iceberg. But there is more. And I have come to fulfill the true intent of the law. So this is what Jesus does. He proceeds with a series of seven examples of what this means. And I think to really hear what Matthew is saying or Matthew's intent, we must jump back to the preface that Matthew gives to the Sermon on the Mount. Right at the very beginning of chapter 5, before Jesus begins to preach, Matthew says this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
Now, our tendency is to gloss over this part and to get to the Beatitudes. But we got to remember that Matthew's gospel is primarily written to a Jewish audience. And Jewish people hearing these words would have been like, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar. The only other place this phrase, he went up on the mountain, appears in Scripture is in the book of Exodus, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive God's law. Now, this was an extremely important moment for God's people. It was the defining moment for his people, the cornerstone of their identity. And sometime after this, Moses had told God's people to be on the lookout for another Moses to come and to deliver them. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So Matthew's readers would have had their radars up after hearing this first line, thinking, hmm, is Jesus the one Moses had been talking about? And so now Jesus is preaching and saying straight up that he has come to fulfill the law that Moses gave. And then he begins this series of examples that all follow the same pattern. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now Jesus here is owning his own, his, his role as the new Moses in a way that Matthew's readers would have understood. When Jesus says, but I say to you, it holds the same weight as the I am statements in the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with them, some of them are, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying that he himself has the same authority as the one who spoke to Moses on Sinai. In other words, while Moses received the law and delivered it to God's people, Jesus himself is the living, breathing, incarnate word of God that has come down to us. So what I want us to do is I want us to look um, at these examples. And let's look at the first one together. First, Jesus addresses the sixth commandment, do not murder. Jesus says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Now, the word angry here literally means carrying anger or nursing a grudge. The word resenting is probably a better translation because since resentment is persistent. It is consistent anger. It's the habit of simmering anger that Jesus confronts with judgment here. And Jesus takes what is a very measurable goal, do not murder, and says, if you are going to nurse a grudge and nurture anger and have disdain for someone in your life, you will be judged as a murderer. That's heavy. This seems a little extreme. But Jesus is pointing out, pointing us towards the spirit of the law, which is love of God and love of neighbor. 
And murder doesn't just spring up from nowhere. And we all know that intense feeling when someone gets under our skin in, a, in just the right way. Or when their personalities never fail to get on our last nerve. And you begin to find them just a little less human. And there's something inside you that says about that person, even if outwardly you are able to remain civil, the world would be better off without you. You contribute nothing. You get in my way, you fool. And Jesus says that every time we decide to let this resentful and sneering anger smolder inside of us, we are nursing the seed of murder. And even if we are able to hold our tongue and not actually say angry, hurtful words, our face holds our anger. Our posture speaks our anger. The tone of our voice communicates our anger. Even our avoidance of the person can be an assault to let them know just what we think of them. There is not much in this world that can suck the joy out and put a bitter edge on a family's life or a friendship or a workplace in the same way that bitter, self-righteous anger can. And this is why Jesus goes on to say that reconciliation takes precedence over worship. Jesus says in verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now when we hear the word altar, we, we tend to think of a church. We have an altar. There are, and there are tons of churches in the city of Chicago. But in Israel, in Jesus' day, there was only one altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to give a gift at the altar, it was a really big deal. You had to travel for days, depending on where you lived. It was not something that you did all the time. And Jesus is saying, if you've gone through all of that trouble, all the time and preparation, and right in the middle of the ceremony, you realize that you have a relationship with someone that's unraveling and you need to reconcile with, you need to turn around and go make it right. Now, Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here to make a point. The point is that we must live day to day with an urgency when it comes to relational repair. He is saying, do not put this off. Do not let the the, the pot simmer one more moment. It doesn't matter how much this inconveniences you. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. You must constantly be undermining the natural tendency of the human heart that would be to blame and belittle and kill people in our heart. And we must be ready to come to people we have sinned against and ask for forgiveness. So let me just ask, in what situations do we need to seek repair in relationships? In what situation do we who live in community, gospel community, need to seek to repair relationships? Well, of course, the most obvious that comes to mind is when you have a verbal, hurtful argument that has not been adequately resolved. But also, when you feel yourself roll your eyes inside your heart when a person speaks, 
And then you think to yourself in your heart, you're an idiot. Or when you find that you have a a sense of satisfaction when you hear about a, a certain person having a problem. Or when you find that you really enjoy passing along negative inf- information about someone. Or when you feel awkwardness or distance in a relationship. Humbling ourselves and lower- lowering our defenses in order to repair is so difficult. It is so hard. That is one reason that people like the religious leaders love to cling to the letter of the law. Because most of us are good if the standard is do not murder. But when the law is actually to love in such a way that even anger is overcome, many of us will feel inadequate and unequipped. And church, I think there are really, really good reasons for that. For one thing, many, if not most of us, have not experienced relational repair and reconciliation as the norm in our lives. But most of us did not grow up in families where this was done well. Where if one person, particularly a parent, did something that hurt you, they would quickly recognize it and acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness. And then they would seek to love better. Or when they were angry, they confronted in a loving way rather than making you pay for their anger. And when repair isn't modeled in our families, it can be a scary thing to move towards. And I think that what makes repair even harder is living in a time and place where we can easily escape ruptured relationships. I think one of the downsides of living in a big city like Chicago is that it's not hard to just find another apartment with new neighbors or another church with new people. But here's the thing. Poison is poison. And if we decide not to deal with our hurt and resentment here and now, the disrepair will follow us. Here's the the crazy counterintuitive thing. Most of us, including the preacher, are so afraid of conflict. But in most of our relationship, the conflict or the rupture in that relationship is rarely, if ever, the most significant part. The repair is what is critical. In fact, ruptures are often opportunities to strengthen relationships. If if a rupture can be repaired, it demonstrates to each person that the relationship is solid enough to withstand when things get bad or even ugly. In fact, if we never have conflict in relationships, it means that at least one party is not showing up with their whole self. Now Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, is saving us from something and saving us for something. He is saving us from the old ways of living that force us to protect ourselves rather than entrust ourselves to life-giving relationships. He is saving us from a small life and giving us the keys to a big, generous, brave life. So briefly, how does Jesus say that repair happens in relationships? Well, simply put, 
It happens through practicing repentance and forgiveness. Repentance is what is implied in our passage in verse 24, where you go because you know that you hurt someone. Repentance is taking full responsibility for what you have done wrong without making any excuses. Even if you think that the other person is 80% of the problem, you own your 20% without any excuses. Repentance also means asking and extending forgiveness. And it always means change. These relation, true relational repair requires all three of these tools, all three of these steps. Later on in Matthew 18, Jesus explicitly addresses forgiveness. And I think there are a lot of important points that we don't have time to get into today. But what I think we see in our passage is that forgiveness implies an awareness that we aren't above the offense for which we are holding our neighbor guilty. Yeah, maybe the particular flavor of sinning isn't my habit. But if I were to go in front of the righteous judge, there is no way that I would be found innocent. And if God will not hold my sins against me because of Jesus, then I have a call to go and do likewise. Now the second example that Jesus gives is from the seventh commandment that we're going to look at briefly. Jesus says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now this second example parallels the first one in many ways. There is the same ratcheting up of the commandment and the same urgency in dealing with the condition of our own hearts. Like murder, adultery is easy to legislate. Either I did it or I didn't. But we need to look into our hearts and honestly answer the question, have I consumed other people? Have I used what is beautiful about their body or their personality, or how I feel when I'm with them to cheaply satisfy a need in me. Because seeing and acknowledging beauty is not a sin when we aren't trying to possess what is not ours, and when we acknowledge that all beauty is a reflection of our Creator. God made us to be desiring creatures. We were made to desire to know and be known and to have intimacy And so the goal of the follower of Jesus is not to kill desire. But lust is any consuming desire that is either out of bounds or out of balance. And we can lust as it is used here when we see a person who we want to possess and we consume them in our hearts without regard for their dignity or equality. And the emotions of anger and lustful desire unite in their enjoyment of power over another person. Lust says, I am going to use you and there's nothing that you can do. 
But we can also call it lust when our desire for a certain lifestyle or status becomes our consuming desire. When we will override what is truly good for us and the people we love in order to get it. And as he did with anger, Jesus uses hyperbole to talk about how urgent it is that we recognize lust for what it is. It's danger and reject it as fitting for our lives. And when we indulge lust, we are short-circuiting all the goodness that we were meant for. True intimacy, true vulnerability, the practice of true honor and delight. But he is inviting us into something different. He's inviting us to truly live. So church, here's the punchline of this sermon. Jesus is inviting us this morning into our brokenness. Jesus is looking at us with kind eyes and addressing the condition of our hearts. And if we can enter into that with him, if we can take his invitation and see ourselves rightly, there is glory and goodness waiting on the other side. But it is a painful journey. Can we confess that we have slayed our neighbors in our heart? That the, 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 the fact that the body count is high. Can we confess that we often, we'd, we would often rather do anything but pursue the messy, vulnerable, costly path to real intimacy? That we often choose to consume other people or things rather than live with integrity? If we can begin to open our hearts to Jesus' invitation, something magnificent awaits us. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He holds out his hand and he offers us a kingdom. It's a strange and alluring and a fresh place where the powerful and the rich don't get to call the shots, where the oppressed and the overlooked are delighted in and honored. It is a place where the vulnerability, where vulnerability is honored and joy is not squelched. It's a place where our hearts can be at home and we can be generous hosts who invite others to be at home too. You see, Jesus has come to fulfill the law so that you and I could fulfill our original vocation, loving God with our whole heart and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, as we ourselves are loved by God. Amen. Let's pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we acknowledge that the way that Jesus has ratcheted up these commandments are impossible without your spirit. Impossible to be able to see our brokenness. Impossible to be able to move towards those we have hurt or who have hurt us. Impossible to stop consuming others or consuming things that we think are going to have and fulfill this desire, that this hunger that we have for you. But Father, we're thankful that Jesus has come to fulfill that which we could not, to give us the strength and this new life to be able to live in a different way to be light 
to be salt, to acknowledge that we are poor in spirit, but we are rich in love because of Jesus. So Father, help us to go from here taking in this truth, hearing the gospel, and responding appropriately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.